Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We've been talking a lot about the 1970s. Yeah, it's really everyone's favorite decade, the, the decade of the moment. It's when OPEC issued an oil embargo that caused the last bout of stagflation. To maintain an embargo now under these conditions must be construed as a form of blackmail. It is also when Willy Brandt pushed West Germany to work with the Soviets, solidifying Europe's reliance on natural gas. Recently, the Soviet Minister for Foreign Trade traveled to Essen, one of West Germany's major industrial cities, to sign a $1 billion contract. And of course, it's when, at the end of the decade, Paul Volcker dramatically raised interest rates, sending the US economy into a recession, all to tame high inflation. We cannot wish our way out of inflation. That is a truth. But the 1970s are actually also interesting for another reason. Fashion? Well, as you know, I love a good moustache, but no. In 1976, Mao Zedong died. Mao Zedong, the most powerful influence on China since Confucius, has died at the age of 82. And China's economy started growing at a faster pace than America's. And the Chinese economy has managed to keep up its remarkable rate of growth pretty much ever since. Until, that is, this year, it's actually forecast now to grow at a slower rate than the US economy for the first time in nearly half a century. You are listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Samaya Keynes in London. And I'm Mike Bird in Singapore. And in today's show, two economic slowdowns in the world's two biggest economies. First, we'll go to America, where we'll hear from former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. He's warning that a recession is imminent. Every time we have had inflation above four and unemployment below four, We've had a recession within the next two years. And then we'll hear from the president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve, James Bullard, who says, not so fast. I don't really see a recession as the base case. Then we'll head to my part of the world and look at what's behind a rare slowdown in China. The Chinese economy is in a worrying state at the moment. It's hard to find a bright spot. And we'll ask, given the very different reasons for each of these slowdowns, what can be done today to prevent pain in the future? Well, hello there, Mike. Hello. Alice is off this week. She had the gall to go on holiday and get married. I mean, it's disgraceful behaviour, really, isn't it? It's it's an insufficient commitment to the podcast. I'm, I'm particularly outraged. Good. Luckily, she did leave us her stat of the week. I am told that it's better than the mud one from last week. Yeah, please do take that as encouragement to listen to the end, not as a reminder to turn off as soon as we start sharing our fun facts. Please do. But first, a quick update on all the market turmoil we discussed last week. They're still down. Snapchat is the latest company to see its share price plunge. 
After some disappointing earnings, it's down over 40%. So the usual disclaimer does apply here. Stock markets are not exactly the real economy, but there's a natural connection with the topic of this week's episode. Investors are having a bad time, and that's because the Fed is fighting high inflation by raising interest rates. Historically, when the Fed has battled high inflation, other things have been hit too, like the real economy. So over the last 70 years, the Fed hasn't once managed to get inflation down from over 5% without also causing a recession at the same time. That does not bode well. Which is why we're dedicating today's show to the risks of recessions around the world. We're going to start with America, which is still, at least as of this recording, the world's largest economy. To find out more about how real the risks are, I rang up our US economics editor, Simon Rabinovich. He has now fully recovered from his Awonk tour a few weeks ago, the one where he was asking about how the Fed failed. Simon, hello. Hello, Sumeya. How is DC? Are you able to walk five minutes without breaking into a full sweat or has the the summer swampiness hit? (laughs) It's not that hot yet. Uh, And also, I don't sweat, I glow, you might remember. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, let's get to what you've been doing recently, which is speaking with former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers and Jim Bullard, the head of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. Let's start with Summers. What did he have to say about America's risk of recession? Well, uh, Summers, as we all know, has made a lot of controversial calls over the years. Uh, He's been right more often than not, uh, including most recently, you know, he was one of the most prominent voices saying that the Fed was walking America into a big inflationary problem. And of course, that was correct. He's now been out there saying that a recession is extremely likely uh, as a result of all the tightening now. Every time we have had inflation above four and unemployment below four, we've had a recession within the next two years. So I think that's pretty high probability and I think is becoming conventional wisdom. I think the only argument that it will not be necessary to have a recession is some version of the team transitory argument. And the people who were on team transitory are no longer willing to be explicit that they believe in team transitory. And I think that's for a very good reason. The pervasiveness of inflation across many components, the fact that inflation is so evident in the labor market, which goes across the whole economy, and the fact that there are a number of factors, most saliently housing, where if anything, the rate of inflation has been understated to date and been suppressed to date in the official indices. And so add all that together, and it seems to me that there's little reason to believe that it's going to be possible to bring inflation down to the two neighborhood without a significant downturn. So to be clear, Larry is very much not on Team Transitory. And of course, absolutely no one involved with this podcast was ever on that team, as listeners of last week's podcast might remember. Yes, sorry to pick at old scabs there, but essentially Larry Summers does not think that Fed Chair Jerome Powell is right in saying that because job vacancies are currently so high, the central bank can raise interest rates without prompting a big rise in unemployment or recession. 
so here's a bit more of our conversation on that. The optimistic scenario put forward by uh, Fed Chairman Powell and put forward by some in the administration and some optimists on the outside is we'll get the vacancies down without any increase in unemployment, and then we'll have more wage restraint and live happily ever after. That's an argument that presumes that it's possible to get vacancies down without getting unemployment up by restraining the economy. That's supported by neither economic theory, which talks about this concept of the beverage curve that involves a trade-off between vacancies and unemployment, nor by economic evidence. If you look at all the experiences with relatively high vacancies that have come down, the coming down has on every single occasion been associated over the next two years with substantial increases in unemployment. So it's conceivable that that would happen, but it's not an idea that's supported by the logic we teach our students in terms of the beverage curve, nor by the empirical experience of past expansions. Okay, so given that you clearly think there will be a downturn, unemployment is going to have to rise. What do you think the recession is going to look like? Is it going to be anywhere near as bad as the financial crisis 15 years ago? I think I think it's very hard to know the answer to that because it depends on a variety of things, none of which we know. I don't see at this moment a reason why we have nearly the kind of financial destruction that we saw in 2007, 2008, nor does it seem to me that we have quite the level of underlying inflation or entrenched expectations that we built up in the 1970s that made the 1982 recession actually see double-digit unemployment. So I would think of the relevant model as being more like the post-dot-com 2001-2002 recession or the 1990-1991 recession as being somewhat better models uh, for this. But I would caution that those were more painful at the time than they're remembered as being in retrospect after the experience we had in the pandemic and in the great financial crisis. I would also caution that if inflation becomes more entrenched, if we suffer more adverse supply shocks, that the situation could become more serious. Well, this is a bit hypothetical, but if there is a recession, how then do you think policymakers are going to respond? Will they have raised rates sufficiently that they'll then have you know, plenty of room to cut them as growth slows? I think yet another reason for tightening and yet another reason why it was a mistake not to have tightened much sooner is that you want to reload the cannon, so to speak. And you want to make there be capacity to 
engage in expansionary policy. I think there's the risk that if we have a few more days like the current ones, and if the economy turns down, one could certainly imagine a recession that required three points of easing, and there only being two points of room for easing. I would not discount that risk. Now, Simon, I do want to get to your views, but after we get to your conversation with Jim Bullard, as I said before, he's the president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. He sits on the Fed's policy committee. I I wanted to speak with Jim because he's known generally as being one of the most, if not the most hawkish members uh, of the Fed. And given all of the talk about recession, given what Larry Summers just had to say, I thought it was worth getting this hawkish voice's view uh, about what the Fed thinks of the recession risk. So here's our conversation. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Thanks for having me today. So let's start off with what is the, the big story, which is what's been happening with financial markets, especially with the equity markets. You know, big, big sell-offs now for seven weeks in a row, volatility in the bond market as well. Does that worry you or do you take that as a sign that the Fed's message about tightening uh, and inflation is finally getting through to markets? Yeah, I would say there's been a sea change in the hawkishness of the Fed, especially since about mid-February. And I think an increasing recognition that at these levels of inflation, inflation is job one, and a recognition that there's some component of the inflation that we've seen that'll be persistent and that will require Fed action to keep under control. So this is, you know, gradually or maybe not so gradually being recognized by financial markets. But you would expect with the Fed getting more hawkish that this would be a moment where you'd have to reprice trillions of dollars of assets uh, all around the world. So I think you should expect financial market volatility in this kind of situation. Does the extent of, I mean, not just the volatility, but, but just the downside now in the stock market, Does that impact your view about what might be necessary for rates? Well, I don't like to tie monetary policy directly to equity prices because they're so volatile and they can get out of line with fundamentals at times. We certainly watch it, but only as it impacts uh, larger elements of the economy, like the performance of, let's say, GDP or labor markets. Understood. So turning to the Fed's main monetary policy tool, which of course is interest rates, if you look at market pricing, the expectation seems to be roughly two percentage points of rate increases between now and mid-2023. Do you think that's roughly appropriate, that level of market pricing? Well, what I think is appropriate is that we raise rates expeditiously now and front load our rate increases in order to keep inflation and inflation expectations under control, get inflation to return to 2% relatively quickly, then we could be lowering rates in 23 and 24. I don't really get the logic of waiting to raise rates you know, until the end of 23 or something like that. Why are you getting to the point where you want to be so late? 
when you've already got inflation today. Seems like you should get to the place where you need to be today, get inflation under control now, and then come back down to the steady state. And that's what I'd be looking for and hoping for. And we do have a more expeditious uh, policy here with 50 basis point hikes at forthcoming meetings. And we're, of course, watching the data to see how to play this beyond that point. But as a general strategy, uh, I think we should do more sooner the so-called front-loading of policy. And I think that will save us having to deal with high inflation for five years or 10 years as we did in the 1970s. I see. And you know, you've relatively famously amongst kind of Fed watcher circles in the past couple of months had come out talking about the possibility of a 75 basis point increase, which Chair Powell, to a certain extent, took off the table after the last FOMC. I mean, do you, are, are you still of the belief that 75 should be on the table, depending on what happens with inflation? Yeah, I don't know if I'd get as wrapped up in this issue. I think we have a good plan for now with these 50 basis point increases. Okay. And you were saying that you would like to be in a position where potentially the Fed is reducing rates in 2023, 2024. The implication there, I guess, would be twofold. One is that obviously inflation is under control. But secondly, that there would have been a you know a substantial growth downturn at that point, necessitating an easing of monetary policy. D- does that mean that you see not just a growth slowdown, but maybe a recession? No, I don't really see a recession as the base case. Uh, of course, we always face recession risk, and it's possible that we get a further shock and we go into recession. But Right now, I think you've got the economy growing at 25 to 3%. Even with everything that's happened so far this year, most forecasts are 25 to 3% for the U.S. economy for all of 2022. That's even with a negative first quarter. I also think growth will pick up in the second half of the year relative to the first half. So it doesn't seem very likely. So, Simon... What do you make of all of that? You've got Summers saying a recession is almost guaranteed, and yet you've got the most hawkish member of the Fed saying that he doesn't think that aggressively raising rates, causing some market turmoil, will tip the US economy into a recession. I mean, I think there's a there's a technical element to this conversation, which is that a recession is defined generally as being two quarters of negative growth. But I think there's general agreement, uh, you know, across the aisle, if you will, uh, that growth is is definitely going to slow. Um, so the question is whether or not growth goes negative or does it go very low but stays, you know, somehow positive. So, so regardless, growth is going to slow. The question is how steep that slowdown is going to be. When you look at the economic impact of rates going up quite sharply, you know, you can break it down into a series of different sectors. You can look at households, the property market, which is obviously incredibly important, and the financial sector. And each one of those sectors, if you take them in turn in America, are considerably less leveraged than they were going into the 2007 financial crisis, which is to say that, you know, higher rates will lead to slower growth. It's not going to lead to a catastrophic slowdown uh, or to anywhere nearly as deep a recession as was experienced from, you know, 07 to 09. Um, So the bad news is that mild recessions are still painful. I guess the good news 
is that it looks like it should be a relatively mild recession uh, or a relatively mild growth slowdown, uh, not, not an incredibly severe one. Okay, so next I want to ask about, I guess, culpability here, right? So we recently wrote a leader saying that really the cause of this mess was policymakers, right? We had a big f- fiscal stimulus, um, the Fed was slow to react. If there's a recession, to what extent do you think that's also policymakers' fault? Do you think that it's really avoidable at this point? Well, it's a really unpalatable thing to have to bring about. But I think that, you know, there, there's an argument that a recession, especially if it's a, you know, a reasonably mild one, which which is, as I've said, I believe the base case, that actually would be a sign that there is grown up policymaking in place. I think the more worrying thing would be that, you know, if inflation doesn't get near to the 2% target, but it looks like it's decreasing, and then growth slows quite sharply for policymakers at that point, to panic and to basically lay off the tightening, which then would lead to this underlying high level of inflation that wouldn't have been fully brought under control. So in fact, I think that, you know, a mild recession, I wouldn't look at that as a policy failure. I would look at them as being alert to the fact that out of control inflation is the gravest risk for the economy. And at this point, unfortunately, a price does have to be paid for bringing inflation under control that price should be moderate and manageable if it's a mild recession. That shouldn't be something that that's, you know, seen as a sign of failure. Okay, yeah, that really, I think, ties in with what we were talking about when we last had you on Money Talks, which was this period of high inflation in the 1960s and 1970s. And there, essentially, inflation inflation expectations became entrenched and it was quite painful to take those back down again. And so what you're saying is best to nip that in the bud now and avoid even more pain later. Okay, now, Simon, after the break, Mike is going to look at what's behind the slowdown in China and how that could impact global growth. I'm wondering, as someone who just relocated from China to the US... How do you think of these two slowdowns? Well, it's a really interesting question. I think at a very high level, you could say there's one point of similarity, which is that they're both policy-induced slowdowns. In America, inflation is high, as we've discussed, and the Fed is doing what it can to bring it down. In China, unfortunately, it's a whole series of policies that have gone wrong. COVID zero, the crackdown on the property sector, the crackdown on the private sector more generally. And the problem there, of course, is the policy settings seem to be relatively fixed in place. So in America, you might say it's a cyclical slowdown or recession. In China, it's looking a lot more structural. Thank you, Simon. Thank you. Now, before we go to the other side of the world and look at China, it's the time in the show where we encourage you to take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't already have one. That's right. Subscribers can read my fascinating piece on the debate around windfall taxes on energy companies in Britain. Mike, what of yours could they look forward to? Yeah, it's been a busy week. Uh, I've been writing this week's briefing with my colleague Callum Williams, who's a senior economics writer at The Economist based in San Francisco. And the briefing is all about a slightly different Chinese economics issue. Uh, It's the Chinese government's attempts to 
reframe, reshape and change its links with the rest of the world, which means fewer links with the liberal democracies that China finds increasingly unreliable and attempts to make itself self-sufficient in high-tech sort of choke point industries. Great. Okay. well, I will look forward to that and not envy you working uh, across the Singapore-San Francisco time difference. Listeners can get a great introductory offer by going to economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, you can sign up to our weekly newsletter by going to economist.com slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes to this episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, we're going to turn to China, where, as Simon said, economic growth is slowing down, but for very different reasons. The main reason at the moment is the Chinese government's zero-COVID policy. The streets of Shanghai are still empty, except where collections of food take place to supply millions of residents stuck at home. The lockdown situation in China is not only a threat to the Chinese economy, but the world economy as well. But that's compounding a bigger problem. President Xi Jinping's struggle to shift the growth engines of the Chinese economy. Mr. Xi calls it his new development concept, which is meant to address great changes unseen in a century. Some of the goals are reasonable. The government wants to cut inequality and debt. But there are some political elements too. Mr. Xi also wants to ensure that China's technological wizardry is directed towards areas like batteries and semiconductors, which will protect the country from Western sanctions if they come in the future. But it's the policies being implemented in a haphazard way that's slowing economic growth and scaring off foreign investors. The property sector, which has helped power China's economic boom over the last two decades, has been hammered, and consumer-facing tech companies are smarting from a regulatory squeeze. One statistic in the paper that really caught my eye, Chinese shares now trade at a 43% discount to American ones, which is a near record gap. To find out more about just what's happening inside China, I rang up Dr. Keiu Jin, an associate professor of economics at the London School of Economics, who is based in Beijing. Hello, great to have you with us. Great to be with you on this program. So what's going on with the Chinese economy right now? It seems like growth has slowed quite rapidly. There's a number of factors at work. What do you think is happening? What do you think the biggest factors are? The Chinese economy is in a worrying state at the moment. It's hard to find a bright spot in the Chinese economy. If you look at services, which was the source of growth in the recent years, uh, it's been shut down in many of the major cities or at least intermittently so around the country. Of course, property sector is a no-go, and not only does it affect demand in general, but also local governments, which rely on land sales to buffer its coffers and to spend on the economy. 
as we've seen recently, the technology and education sectors are under tight regulatory scrutiny. And whilst I don't think it will affect the long-run entrepreneurial spirit and dynamism, at least in the very short run, it does have an effect on investor confidence. Lower-income households are, of course, uh, suffering quite a bit uh, at the risk of losing jobs or taking a huge pay cut. And richer households are holding back their spending and saving more based on precautionary motives. So we're seeing luxury sectors and uh, higher segments of consumption sector also suffering. And most of all, confidence is lost, not only among enterprises, but also of households and of foreign enterprises and investors. Uh, So to get the economy back on its feet and to restore confidence, it will take not only the right policies, but also time. Still, I think this is a short-term deviation from the norm And there are many bright spots to look forward in the near term and in the future. But currently, the Chinese economy has plunged into an economic paralysis. So you mentioned there something which I think a lot of people have picked up on and been interested in, which is the sort of lower household confidence, especially among lower income groups. And we saw recently some slightly worrying unemployment numbers. It feels like something that China in its modern history really hasn't been through that much in that the growth rate in China has been very high generally. It's been slowing down in the past few years. But what do you expect to see coming through that's new for China here as you start to see what looks more like the sort of recession you might have seen in an ordinary business cycle in a more developed economy in the past? Well, first of all, unemployment is the biggest concern, I would say, for the Chinese economy. We really don't know how many people are losing jobs. I mean, there are anecdotes and examples of big tech companies slashing off a fifth of their employees, if not more. And those are just, you know, recorded unemployment. And then there's the informal sector or the smaller businesses. And, you know, the private enterprises support 80 percent of the nation's employment. And if we see millions of companies potentially folding this year, unemployment rates are really high among the fresh graduates of colleges. Uh, This is especially worrying. And one difference between the Chinese policy response and the, let's say, the, the other countries' responses in the West towards the pandemic, especially in the earlier days, is that the West economies tended to focus on households. Uh, restoring, you know, household confidence through uh, a series of consumption support and monetary support. Whereas in China, a lot of the support is towards enterprises, companies, lowering their cost of capital and infrastructure spending. But when there's no confidence in the economy, it doesn't help much. And it certainly doesn't help consumption because it doesn't directly affect the household. So there's a huge micro and macro divide. On the macro, it seems that the growth rates are tolerable for now for the Chinese economy. But that masks micro reality where really enterprises and households plus on top of the unemployment rate is extremely worrying. Yeah. And of course, there's zero COVID in addition to the other areas that are crimping economic growth like the war in Ukraine. Absolutely. So these are short-term shocks, but China was already going into a structural change in its economy. It's almost entered into a new era. Uh, And that new era is not only just because growth has been very fast for a very long period of time and there's declining rates of return to capital, which happens naturally to any economy that has grown for a long time, but the government has also deliberately chosen 
a more sustainable and equitable growth path, which means that companies have to care about the environment, which means that enterprises which for a period of time during China's fastest growth expanded voraciously and sometimes in legally gray zones, that explosive era is over. And it's just a different growth model. So the intention has been to slow down the economy with emphasis on quality growth, with emphasis on raising the standards of living of households, which wasn't really the focus area before. I think it's really interesting to think about this sort of change in the tools used in economic policy. You mentioned there China's sort of more traditional credit-driven macroeconomic levers uh, that, you know, you could tighten credit when you wanted to and, and loosen it when you wanted to. And that seems to have been the way of doing things for most of, say, the last 20 years at least. You mentioned the sort of focus more on household incomes. We've seen, even this week, announcements of targeted fiscal steps. You've seen um, tax credit rebates announced. Is that the sort of thing you'd expect to see more of in the future as this sort of pivot to a different economic policy goes forward? Absolutely. For a long period of time, a puzzle, a paradox of the Chinese economy was that the household share of income, as a share of GDP, that is, was declining over time from 70% in the early 1990s to only 60% right before the financial crisis. And that's unusual because in Western market economies, the household share of income is around 80% and stable. So as the Chinese economy expanded, not all of those gains were accrued to households. And the old model was focused on investment in spokesacks to industries and the government, and there was an imbalance uh, not in favor of the households. So today, we've already seen steps being taken. If we think about the anti-monopoly kind of regulatory changes, the focus on the corporates that we have mentioned, even the crackdowns on some of these companies that have violated data privacy, and manipulate a consumer interest, I mean, this is already uh, signs and actually one of the motives, the economic motives, at least behind these moves, have been a focus on consumers. So in many, many different angles, we've seen much more support for the consumers, even including when the property giants were collapsing, uh, there was much more consideration for the households on the other end than the corporates. Just to look a little bit at the sort of global growth picture, how does the Chinese slowdown affect the sort of rest of the world economy? I'm thinking particularly of the period after the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. You saw advanced economies almost all in recession, almost all at the same time. The Chinese growth rate really not dramatically affected if you look at that over a sort of longer time series and essentially boosted demand at the same time that the rest of the world was slowing down or a large part of the rest of the world was slowing down. How is it different now in the sense that you have a US economy that looks like it's slowing down at the same time as the Chinese economy? Are they more sort of synchronized than they have been at the past or are these mostly just idiosyncratic things unfortunately happening at the same time? Well, first of all, it's really not good news that the world's two largest economy are experiencing their own almost economic crisis at the same time. And what makes it worse this time is that China is a much larger and much more open economy now than it was in 2009. So the global impact, whether it's through trade or financial flows, will inevitably be larger. And as you mentioned, during the last financial crisis cycle, China was able to even be a sort of an anchor, uh, whether it's an anchor of demand or even in terms of the financial arena, 
being able to support some of the emerging uh, economies when it comes to providing liquidity where it was absent or not provided by the U.S., Now China is in itself in a major economic paralysis, certainly unlike the last time around. And the spillover is great, but that's mostly concentrated on the real economy. When you say the real economy in China, what do you mean by that exactly? So if we think about tourism, Chinese tourists are nowhere to be found now around the world, whereas in many countries, they were the main supporter of the service industry, the tourist industry in these countries. You know, lots of foreign enterprises are struggling at the moment in China, as are domestic companies. And so, you know, if you think about manufacturing goods or consumer goods reliant on the Chinese economy, including Many of these big companies have half their sales uh, deriving from China, and that was one of their growth areas during the earlier years of the pandemic when everybody else was in a crisis mode. That's flipped somehow currently. The fact that China cannot really be, at least in the short term, a reliable source of anchor of demand for the world is what makes it very different and also what makes it very worrying. Well, Dr. Kei Jin, thank you very much for making the time to speak to us. It was really enlightening. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, well, that was another incredibly gloomy show. Should we at least try to end on a slightly lighter note with our stat of the week? Yep, absolutely. I've been preparing all week. Maybe there should be a listener vote on whose is best. Just a suggestion. Yeah, it's still early days. My, my attempts to turn this into the quiz section uh, are not going well. Uh, it's still stat of the week for now. Yeah, hard veto on that. Um... Okay, should we start with Alice? Yes, yes, she sent in this for her figure of the week. My stat of the week this week is $795, which is the price of one Balenciaga and New York Stock Exchange collaboration t-shirt. It was debuted during Balenciaga's Fashion Week show, which was held on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange this week. And it somewhat devastatingly is actually quite chic i feel like because fashion shows you know take several months to come together you know when balenciaga were planning this the s&p 500 was probably at close to its all-time highs and so surely them launching this t-shirt has got to be like a new high watermark for bull market behavior okay i love alice but is that a stat or is that just a price i think you're right I think she's taken her eye off the ball here. Um, it's, it's a price rather than a stat. It's, uh, obviously, we're all still very interested, but it's, it's not really a stat, is it? Um, okay, can I, can I give you mine now? Yes, go for it. What's yours? Well, in honour of James Bullard at the St. Louis Fed, I thought that I would find a fun fact about the FRED database, which is this database that the St. Louis Fed runs. Fred is really the best friend of all US data nerds. It helped me out in many a time of need. And so I went to look for the series with the most observations in Fred. And it turns out that is USRECDP, not a very snappy name. It is an indicator of whether or not the US is in a recession. And it goes all the way back to December the 1st, 1854. And so there are, as of this recording, 61,170 observations. That is a Fred record. Yeah. So if you're of an anxious disposition and you'd like to check on a day-to-day basis whether the US economy is in a recession, that's where you can find it. 
Um, my statistic of the week is 850,000, and that refers to uh, car giant Toyota's production goals from June. They've cut their production by about 100,000 a month, and it's based on something that we've suddenly stopped hearing about, which is the semiconductor shortage. Um, it seems like we pivoted massively to everyone panicking about demand, having spent almost all of the last two years worrying about supply parts. And I think it was a very interesting little stat to me to note that that is actually still happening. Yeah, yeah we might have gotten bored talking about supply chain disruptions, but they are definitely still real. Our thanks go out to Larry Summers, Jim Bullard and Dr. K.U. Jin. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Kevin Kaners. Our sound engineer is Nico Raufast. The show's editor is Kim Gittelson. I'm Samaya Keynes in London. And I'm Mike Bird in Singapore. And this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.